In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Today we light the first candle of Advent, the candle of hope. We put our hope in the one to come, the promised one who comes from God to bring good news of salvation. We hope in one, the one who will lead us to walk in the light of the Lord. He is our hope, he is our redeemer, and he is our savior. Thank you, ladies. You guys can give them a hand. I feel like... Our church always needs permission to clap, but you don't. You can just clap. It's all good. Now I've opened it up to (laughs) any and everything. All right. Um, Some of you, especially if you're more of a 1045 person, you may not know this, but uh, Grace Cooper, our director of children's ministry, uh, started... Um, sort of a new class age grouping about a year ago, starting in fourth grade, and and I think it makes it all the way up into middle school now. Um, But this has been serving as kind of a prototype for a youth ministry, and they've been calling it Grapple, and we're really grateful to have them and excited to have them be a part of our Advent series in doing some of these readings and helping us with some of the elements like lighting uh, the candle. So they they meet on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., and they do a monthly... Silly game, fun night. They, they tell me the things that they do, and I'm like, wow, that is, that's a silly, fun game. That sounds exciting. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of great energy in life around that right now, and uh, really grateful, again, to have them be a part of it, and for Grace and her leadership in that, and then for the families who um, have been committed to helping make that happen. It's uh, been really cool. I think a cool story that maybe not everybody in our church knows about. So uh, it'll be fun to have them be a part of this with us. So let's, uh, let's pause here for just a second and pray, and then we'll get in here to our conversation in the book of Genesis. So pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of community, the gift of being a part of an uh, intergenerational church. And thank you for the gift that the kids of this church are uh, to us, the energy and the life that they bring. It is a good thing to be able to experience in a fresh way a season like Christmas through the eyes of, uh, of a child. And as they are a, a part of our services over the next couple of weeks, would you use them to, again, help us approach this season with a childlike faith? Thank you for all the things that you're doing here at Regeneration, and we get to be a part of it, God, as we begin this Advent season together. Uh, We come in uh, this morning with a lot of different things going on in our minds and in our hearts, and so would you take those now and hold them for us so that we can uh, fully enter in to this moment, so that we can be present to your word and to your spirit, so we can allow it to speak to our hearts. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage this morning to be able to hear and respond to what it is you want us to hear today. Give us the courage to take the next step, whatever that might look like for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen. So, it is Advent. Lo and behold, Christmas is upon us. And my guess is that if we were to survey the room this morning, uh, we would be in a lot of different places when it comes to the Christmas season. Probably a lot of mixed emotions about uh, a season like this. Maybe some of us come into Advent this year and we're just really jaded about Christmas. We're jaded because the holiday starts earlier and earlier. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, like even while Halloween was still being promoted, Christmas decorations started showing up, you know, all the way in October. Maybe you're jaded because you've been inundated with Christmas music already. It's only December 3rd, and you're thinking, how am I going to endure three more weeks of this? You know, we've had the, the, the annual uh, blow-up about Starbucks cups. There's all this stuff that happens, and we just kind of get grumpy about Christmas, right? It's an in-your-face season, and we'd kind of like it to be a little bit less in our face. So maybe you come into Advent this year and you're, you're kind of jaded. Maybe you're on the totally other end of the spectrum. You love Christmas. You couldn't wait for Christmas to get started. As the rest of your family was cleaning up the Thanksgiving dishes, you were already decorating the tree. Okay, you've watched Elf five times. You've got all of your, your shopping done and the presents are wrapped and you've stocked up. Like you have a whole fridge in your house dedicated to eggnog. Okay, you love Christmas. Can't get enough of this season. Now, my guess is that most of us probably are, are somewhere in between those two extremes. And again, we, we have sort of mixed feelings, mixed emotions about this year, about Advent. And I think a large part of that is because it has been one of the darker years in recent memory. Just think of some of the things that have happened here in 2017. Mass shootings, terrorist attacks, sex abuse scandals, corruption, political division, white nationalist rallies, threats of nuclear war, famine, earthquakes, hurricanes, fires. It's been a dark year. And then there's all the stuff that we're just going through kind of normally, just our everyday stuff. The, the, the battles that we all fight, family drama, issues in our marriages, depression, sickness, maybe we've been through a tragedy, work has been rough, you're trying to raise kids, trying to survive, make it here in the Bay Area, there's all this pressure from all these different directions, we come into a season like this with mixed emotions. And then, you know, we're kind of confronted with this like, hey, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Put on an ugly sweater and smile and be happy. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. For the next couple of weeks, the next four weeks, we are going to explore the themes of light and dark. These are not your normal Advent themes, but I think what we're going to discover is that by looking at light and dark and what Scripture has to say about this, there is a lot of connection all kinds of deep, significant connections to the Advent story. And my hope, our hope, is that by exploring these themes of dark and light and what Scripture has to say about it, is that it's going to take us somewhere way more significant this Advent than parties for hosting and marshmallows for roasting. So, let's begin in the beginning. If you have your Bible, look at Genesis chapter 1. This is, I always love teaching Genesis chapter 1 because... 
It's page one. Okay, anybody can find that. We're looking at just the first couple of verses. This is essentially day one of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the night day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase chronological snobbery. I love this phrase, chronological snobbery. Definition is this. This is the argument that the thinking art or science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present simply by virtue of its temporal priority. It just sounds like a snobby thing, right? Just the (laughs) the definition itself. Okay, but it's this idea that where we are at, our particular moment in history is clearly, obviously, the most advanced, sophisticated point in history that we've ever come to. Okay, and whatever came before is, is clearly, obviously, more primitive and backwards. Now, I bring this up because for many people, there is this thought that the book of Genesis has nothing to say to us in the 21st century. That this is an irrelevant text. Science has proved it irrelevant. Anthropology has proved it irrelevant. We've all moved on. We're asking different questions. This doesn't apply to us anymore. And to that, I think C.S. Lewis would say, really? Really? You guys have got it all figured out, huh? Have we really moved beyond the questions the original audience of Genesis was asking? Now let's dig into that a little bit. What were some of the questions that they were asking? Well, verse 1 begins with this very bold, resolute claim that God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, pretty straightforward. And I think a lot of times we just sort of read right past that. We'll come back to this in a moment. Verse 2, though, much more mysterious, right? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Without form and void, the Hebrew is tohu wavohu, which is fun to say. This other word, this other term, darkness, these are not uh, just sort of throwaway, nice metaphorical words. This is very intentional language being chosen here by the author. And here's where we need to sort of pause for a moment and realize that the book of Genesis does not come to us in a vacuum. The Hebrew people to which it was written, from which it was written, were part of a larger context. They were part of a larger uh, time and era And so geographically and chronologically, they are linked to what historians call the ancient Near East. Now, two of the big questions for people of the ancient Near East were, where do we come from and what kind of world do we live in? Where do we come from and what kind of world do we live in? Now, these are, of course, nothing like the questions that we ask today, right? Now, these ancient Near Eastern cultures, which included Egypt and Canaan and Babylon and several others, they all had creation stories. 
similar to the one we find in Genesis. And these stories were an attempt to answer these questions. Now, the answer to that first question, where do we come from, every culture gave credit for creation to some divine being. Baal for the Canaanites, Marduk for the Babylonians, and you can go on through each of those cultures. But everybody gave credit to a divine being for creation. Now, these other cultures answered this second question, what kind of world do we live in with the word chaos? What kind of world do we live in? It is a chaotic world. They lived in a chaotic, violent, unpredictable world. Again, totally different from ours, right? So their creation stories represented this view And as a result, a lot of these stories show that creation itself was an act of violence, oftentimes the byproduct of a war between a couple of the gods. Let's look at one example. The Enuma Elish is the Babylonian origin story. And in this story, there are two gods from their pantheon of of gods, Marduk and Tiamat, who get into a fight, and it turns into this ferocious, bloody duel. We're going to look at some of the uh, verses, if you will, from this text in just a moment, but there's a lot of it that like can't even really read <laughs> in church because it's so uh, bloody and violent. They get in this big duel. Marduk emerges victorious, and then here's what happens. Okay, it says that he calmed down. Marduk calms down, so insinuating that he was upset, that he was angry, and then the Lord was inspecting her carcass. Speaking of Tiamat that he might divide the monstrous lump and fashion artful things. He split her in two like a fish for drying. Half of her he set up and made a cover heaven, and he stretched out the hide and assigned watchmen and ordered them not to let her waters escape. Now, if you read day two in the Genesis account, verses six through eight of chapter one, there's some language here that sounds very similar, the separation of the waters. However, God's not using some other God's carcass to do this. So I I give this as an example to help us see that there's similar language being used in Genesis 1 compared to these other stories, and yet at the same time, it's telling a very different story. But we begin here, Genesis 1, not written in a vacuum, speaking to the Hebrews, but speaking from the cultural currents of the ancient Near East. And so these words... Formless, void, darkness, the deep were words that resonated with the chaotic worldview of these ancient Near Eastern cultures. And the key one here is darkness. Because darkness, in many ways, was seen as the ultimate chaos. It was scary. I mean, there were no lights to turn on. There were no flashlights or things like this. The darkness was most to be scared because that's where the really bad stuff happened, in the dark. So with all of that as a background, let's look at some of the countercultural claims that Genesis 1 makes. First claim is this, there is only one God. This is a radical departure from the polytheistic worldview of the ancient Near East, only one God, and as a result, this God doesn't have to fight another God, doesn't have to kill anybody, doesn't have to split any carcasses to create. 
As we'll see in a moment, all this God has to do is speak. And it is his word that brings things into being. Second claim is this. This singular God is the origin of all creation. Again, back to verse 1, which we sometimes just sort of skip past. God created the heavens and the earth. He created it all. Again, this would have been uh, um, very countercultural for these other worldviews. What do you mean there's only one God? What do you mean everything that is created comes from this God? How is that even possible? And then finally, the, the third claim here is that this one God is over the creation. Hovering outside of, over the chaos... And as you read through the rest of the chapter, you see this systematic ordering and creating of a functional home for himself and his beloved children, man and woman. So for Israel, for the Hebrew people, the answer to these deep questions are that we come from Yahweh's loving, creative word. And we live in an orderly, functional world that is good. That's the phrase, the refrain that's repeated all throughout Genesis 1. It was good. It was good. It was good. That's the Cliff Notes version of Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 3 does help us see and understand that there is chaos in our world. There are chaotic, chaotic destructive forces in our world, but they come not from God and not from the creation itself, but from another source. And so this introduces a third big question, a question the Hebrews wrestled with for thousands of years. What do we do with sin? What is God going to do about this problem? Does chaos and darkness win? Does sin get the last word? Back to the issue of chronological snobbery. Our questions today are really not all that different, right? We still wonder where we come from and what are we doing here? We still wonder and struggle with what kind of world do we live in? And we still wonder if chaos gets the last word. Genesis 1 and the rest of Scripture do not address out-of-date questions. They they address extremely relevant questions, but they do it in a very countercultural way. Right? They give us countercultural answers. Now let's keep going here. Verse 3, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So God speaks. And God's word creates. And the first thing that he speaks, his first word, is light. Again, the refrain throughout Genesis 1 is it was good, it was good, it was good. But the most immediate instance of it was good is here in verse 4. Usually it's sort of saved for the end of the day. God speaks, the lights turn on immediately. This is good. God takes the good light, separates it from the chaos, from the darkness. He sets it apart. This, by the way, is the simple definition of the word holy, to be set apart. 
God names the light day. He names the dark night. What we see here is total power and command. Creating, ordering, naming. This God is not messing around. This God is not weak or feeble or struggling against some enemy or opponent. This is a master craftsman performing his craft, working his craft, creating with great skill and great intention. Now, a good question to ask here is why begin with light? And there's sort of the obvious answer, which is you got to turn the lights on to see what you're doing, right? But I think even deeper than that, if darkness is the fundamental chaos and you are all about order and function and creating this orderly, functional world, wouldn't you begin with light? And so if light is the first word, what then does that say about God? In the interpretation of of Scripture, the first mention of something is very important. This is sometimes called the primacy of the first word, primacy of first mention. God's first word is light. And then, as you continue to trace this throughout Scripture, we see over and over again God associated with light. Here's a couple examples. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light, as with the garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then moving ahead to the New Testament, we are given this very clear, very simple, yet very profound summary. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Light is the first word because God is light. It is essential, an essential aspect of his character. God is light. And so when he shows up, it's never good news for the darkness. So, of course, light is the first word, but it also, interestingly enough, is the last word. If you still have your Bible in front of you, just flip to the last page. Revelation chapter 22, we read this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree or for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And pay attention to this. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Now, just as the first mention, the first word is important in our understanding and interpretation of Scripture, so is the last word. 
final mention. And so what we see here is that the big story of Scripture, the narrative arc of Scripture, is that light overcomes the darkness. The chaos does not win. God is light and in Him is no darkness and all those things we spoke of earlier, death, racism, natural disasters, corruption, depression, every broken heart and broken relationship will be brought into the light. No more darkness, no more night. So then we have to ask the question, what does all this light and dark have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with a baby at a manger and Christmas trees and angels and shepherds and all that stuff? Well, in the account of the life of Jesus recorded by Matthew, we're told that when Jesus was born, there's a particular star that shows up in the sky. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about these wise men from the east next Sunday. But for now, focus on the star. There are some scholars who connect this all the way back to an ancient prophecy in the Old Testament. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Isn't it interesting that the same God whose first word was let there be light uses a light to point people to his son. His son who would go on to claim, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Again, in this story, the first word is light. Named and separated from darkness and the last word is light, this light that will never go out and in the middle of the story which is still very much full of darkness. The Father who is light sends His Son who is the light of the world to overcome the darkness. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what Advent is all about. This is the good news of the Christmas story, that the light that has always been present, that pre-exists us and the mess that we've made of the world has broken into the darkness and overcome the darkness and will continue to overcome the darkness until that day in which God ultimately and definitively defeats the darkness altogether. That is the good news of Advent. Now, to kind of bring this to a more personal level, let's look at one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a small role to play in the bigger story. He only shows up a couple of times, and we're just going to trace his uh, his journey here really briefly. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee, part of the uh, Jewish ruling class, which meant that he was well-educated, that he was probably financially secure, and that he certainly enjoyed a level of power and privilege. And if you know anything about the Jesus story, you know that the Pharisees and Jesus didn't always get along. In fact, pretty much never got along. 
And yet here is Nicodemus, one of them, part of this group that sees Jesus as a threat, and yet he can't, uh, he can't deny that there's something going on with Jesus. In John chapter 3, we're first introduced to him, and here's what we see. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now take note of the incredibly important detail that John gives us in verse 2. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, in the dark, when it would have been less likely to have been caught by one of his peers, one of his friends. So here at the beginning, he's sort of testing the waters, right? He's, he wants to find out more about Jesus, but he's not quite ready to go public with this, to give himself away. But he does end up in this incredible conversation with Jesus. Some of, some of the most famous stuff, even in pop culture, about the Christian faith is found in this conversation. The phrase born again comes from this conversation. John 3.16, which we see at football games and all this kind of stuff all the time, right? Part of this conversation. Here's how it ends, though. It ends in an interesting way. Jesus kind of calls out Nicodemus. Jesus speaking here, this is the judgment, the light. Here's this theme again. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Darkness is certainly, can certainly be chaotic Lacking, lacking in order. But there's also this kind of freedom that comes from the darkness, right? This ability to not be seen, to not have your uh, deeds be seen by other people. Jesus says wicked people seek out the darkness so that their deeds are not exposed. And this is a challenge to Nicodemus who comes to him under the cover of darkness at night. And yet, he comes to speak with the light of the world. And so these last couple of verses here, this challenge that Jesus lays out is this. What kind of person are you going to be, Nicodemus? What kind of person are you going to be? A person of darkness, sneaking around at night, or are you going to come into the light? John does not answer that question for us right away. We don't see Nicodemus again for a couple more chapters. He pops up in chapter 7, where there's a, a raging debate amongst the Pharisees about what are we going to do about this Jesus thing that's happening? This doesn't seem like a good thing that's going on, so how are we going to respond to this? Nicodemus sticks his neck out here just a little bit. Look at what happens. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that is to Jesus, and it was one of them, them being the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Kind of, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, maybe he has something to say. <laughs> and the rest of them reply, are you from Galilee too? 
which was a massive insult. (laughs) Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is a gutsy move here by Nicodemus. Again, he's not fully uh, declaring his allegiance here to Jesus, but he is putting himself on the line a little bit. He gets reprimanded for this. But you get the sense that he continues to explore, he continues to take steps towards the light. Now, he doesn't show up again until the very end of the story. After Jesus has been crucified, we read this. After these things, these things being the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, here's another secret guy, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Notice John emphasizes that detail a second time. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's an extravagant gift. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Two guys here. Joseph, secret disciple, Nicodemus, this Pharisee sneaking around at night who are secretly sympathetic to Jesus' cause, but now coming into the light, declaring their allegiance, using their privilege and resources to give Jesus a proper burial, and in doing so, Nicodemus in particular is responding to Jesus' challenge allowing it to be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And I love his story. And I think there's a lot within it for us to explore, and it raises some questions for us to ask of ourselves. Namely, this question, where are we in relationship to the light? As we enter this Advent season together, where are we in relationship to the light of the world? Are you in the dark? Are you actively seeking the dark and avoiding the light? Many of us spend a lot of time and energy doing this. We do not want to be exposed. We do not want people to know us fully or uh, for the things that we do in hiding to be made known to other people or even to God. We want to keep it in the dark. Coming into the light might ask something from us that we don't want to give, but maybe the question of this Advent season is, will you start to move towards the light? Will you start to move towards the light? Maybe you're like Nicodemus in the middle of his story. You're sort of testing this thing out. You're seeking the light, but you're still lurking in the shadows. And so maybe the invitation of Advent this year is to step fully into the light. To declare your allegiance to the light of the world. And then maybe you've done this. You've declared your allegiance. But you've lost the plot of this big story. You've forgotten the first word is light and the final word is light. You've allowed the darkness of our world to trample on your hope. And this morning we lit the first candle of the Advent wreath, the candle of hope. 
And so we begin with remembering that in the big story of history, the big story of Scripture, the light does win. It may not feel like it right now in this moment. It may feel like the darkness is, is just crushing you. But the good news is that the light does win. And so maybe the invitation for you is to trust that again. To open yourself up to the truth that the light does get the last word. So what is the invitation for you during Advent this year? Are you in the dark? Are you in the shadow? Do you need to step back into the light? Do you need your hope to be reignited? Whatever mixed feelings you may have as we begin this season together, what is God saying to you? What is the invitation of Advent for you this year? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, my sense is that we're in one of those three places. Each, each and every one of us could identify with one of those three places this morning. Father, I pray for those who have been in the dark. Just being here today is a step towards the light, God. Would you give them the courage to continue exploring, to take that next step, to allow your light to begin to expose some stuff so that we can experience the grace and the healing that you offer through Jesus' death and resurrection. God, for those who are in the shadows, I pray that this would be a, a, a turning point uh, in their life, that they would use this season and you would use this season to move them fully into the light, like Nicodemus, declaring your allegiance. And then, Father, for those of us who maybe been walking with you for a while, but the darkness of the world, the darkness that we've been battling just in our own story, has squashed our hope. So I pray that you would be tender to those who may be in this place, but also that you would remind us yet again that the light wins, that there is a good ending to this story. And we may not see it, we may not feel it right now, but you are somehow mysteriously reconciling it and making it new. Father, help us wherever we may be this morning to have the courage to take that next step of faith towards the light. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.